All right. Good to see everybody. Can I return with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 14? If you're new with us, we'd like to welcome you to Calvary and let you know that we are working our way through the Gospel of John here on Sunday mornings. And we, uh, let me say it again that um, when we came to John 13, I told you that we were less than 15 hours from the cross, but more specifically, chapters 13 through 17 cover a six-hour period, roughly from 6 p.m. to midnight. And uh, this was such an important six-hour period that John spends one quarter of his gospel, one quarter of his entire gospel recording it. It begins in the upper room where Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover together and uh, where he's going to be giving them one final teaching before his crucifixion. As we have already pointed out in John 13 through 17, we have in essence the Lord's farewell message to his disciples, where he endeavors to comfort their hearts in the present, but also to prepare their hearts for the future. Now, last week we finished chapter 13, and now this morning we find ourselves entering chapter 14. Of course, you realize that it's all one message. The chapter divisions were added much later. Maybe we could uh, have the Sunday school kids in the worship now. So we can. It's good to hear them singing and all, but uh, all good things have to come to an end at some point. But uh, it's the same message, of course. Don't forget the chapter divisions, all right? It started in chapter 13, will culminate uh, in chapter 17 with Jesus' high priestly prayer. But um, in this message, he is going to be spending these last few hours instructing them, uh, teaching them, but mostly comforting them. The next few days will be especially difficult for these men as their whole world is going to be turned upside down. And so in chapter 14, the Lord Jesus opens up with this message to his disciples, minus Judas, who is now going to betray him. But he just starts out our chapter 14 with the words, let not your heart be troubled. This admonition by the Lord Jesus is not surprising. Remember, context, always context, all right? He has just announced that one of his apostles was a traitor and was going to betray him. And that Peter, who was, you know, big, burly fisherman Peter, no doubt the strongest of the disciples in physical character, but also probably spiritually. Uh, we know he had a heart for the Lord. Uh, but um, Jesus announced that even Peter was going to deny him not once but three times. And then the heaviest blow of all came when he revealed to them that he was going to leave them soon and they couldn't follow him. Jesus follows up these bombshell revelations with the words, a command in the Greek, let not your heart be troubled. One author had this to say, he said, and I quote, the last few days had been an emotional roller coaster for the disciples. Their fervent messianic hopes had reached an apex during the dizzying excitement of the triumphal entry. That happened four days earlier. All right, they're still riding high on that, okay? Only to be dashed when Jesus publicly announced his impending death. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. 
But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He said that in John 12, verse 24. The author goes on, and then he said in John 13, verse 33, he said, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Like their fellow Jews, the disciples saw the Messiah as a conquering king. He would, they passionately believe, free Israel from bondage to Rome, restore their sovereignty and glory as a nation, and extend their power over the entire world. The concept of a dying Messiah had no place in their theology. On a more personal note, the disciples had forsaken everything to follow Jesus, and now apparently he was forsaking them, end quote. And guys, I think on top of everything that Jesus had predicted that night, uh, the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, I think this was the thing that hit them the hardest, and I believe what really precipitated uh, his statement, let not your heart be troubled, the fact that he was leaving them soon and they couldn't follow him. Uh, chapter 13, verse 33. And, um, but by saying this, Jesus, when he said, let not your heart be troubled, um, he wasn't telling them not to start being troubled. They were already troubled. He was giving them a command to stop being troubled. Uh, please understand, God never commands us to do anything but what he also supplies the power for us to obey that command. God never commands us to do anything without him giving us the strength and power to obey what he has commanded. This command is tied to their, and of course, our faith in God. But in particular, faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Again, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Another statement of divinity, all throughout Jesus' ministry, he went around proclaiming his equality with the Father, but also his divinity. Remember, the whole Gospel of John is built around seven I am statements. I am is the name of God. And uh, by, by constantly going around saying, I am this, I am that, he was declaring his divinity. Uh, the Pharisees and scribes knew what he was saying. At se several points in his ministry, they picked up stones to kill him because they believed he was blaspheming. He was declaring himself to be God, Almighty Jehovah God. And, uh, but here again, because of what's coming, he needs to remind them, guys, the next few days especially are going to be very difficult. Very difficult. Remember, though, that I am God. And what, seemed, what is going to seem to be the worst possible thing that could happen, I guarantee you, and I'm paraphrasing from different passages, is going to wind up being the best possible thing that could ever have happened. Jesus' death on the cross would lead to his resurrection, and that would cause God to be able to extend to the whole human race eternal life in his kingdom forever. So, again, let not your heart be troubled. The Greek word translated trouble is the verb terasso, and it's a word that means to shake or to stir up. Uh, that particular Greek word is used both literally and figuratively in the New Testament. It's used literally... Uh, in John 5, verse 4, where the angel stirred up the waters of the pool of Bethesda in preparation for somebody who was sick to go into the waters, the first one in would be healed. Right? It's, it was used, though, uh, figuratively in numerous places in the Old Testament. I'll give you two examples. Matthew 2, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, that a Messiah, 
uh, was going to be born, or had been born, I should say, from the wise men. He heard this. Uh, it says he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Folks, that's one of those classic understatements in Scripture. Because Herod the Great was a nut job. Talk about paranoid. He killed his first wife and two of his sons. It was, uh, it was said that it was uh, safer to be one of Herod's pigs than his sons. Because he thought all these people were conspiring against him, so he had them knocked off. He had them killed. So when it says Herod was troubled because the announcement that there was a king, king of the Jews had been born, he freaked out. And, and so on. And so all Jerusalem knew this was not good. When Herod freaks out, we're all in trouble. Because he makes our lives miserable, okay? But the one I want you to key in a little bit, don't have to turn there, Matthew 14, 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, Jesus walking to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, they were troubled, okay, uh, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. And that's what I want you to see about this Greek word, all right? When Jesus talks about that they had a troubled heart, it was a heart that was overcome with fear, is what the idea was. Uh, that was in regard to what the disciples were uh, experiencing at this moment in the upper room as Jesus is talking about going away and some other things that greatly troubled them. Basically, what the essence of their fear was, was uncertainty of the future. We could paraphrase what Jesus told his disciples in chapter 14, verse 1, this way. Do not let your hearts be fearful. Do not let your hearts be fearful. Now, before we look at that, let me just say that fear is the number one emotional issue plaguing people. Always has been, probably always will be. It was reported that Newspaper columnist and counselor, remember Ann Landers? I mean, I was I'm old enough to remember her, and I didn't really read her column, but she was a wise sage that people would write into to gain wisdom from her on different issues. And it was reported that at the height of her career, I'm reading a little uh, uh, blurb about her, uh, it was reported at the height of her career, she received an average of 10,000 letters each month and nearly all of them from people burdened with problems. She was asked if there was any one problem that dominated the letters she received. Her reply was the one problem her readers seemed to struggle with above all others was fear. She said, and I'm quoting her, people are afraid of losing their health, losing their wealth, their loved ones. People are afraid of life itself, end quote. Someone else has said, and I'm quoting, Fear is the most crippling human emotion. It paralyzes soldiers in the midst of battle and keeps Christians from sharing the life-saving message of the gospel with those who are lost, end quote. Now, guys, in Scripture, there are places where uh, that admonish us to fear some things. We've talked about this, right? In Scripture, there are places that admonish us to fear some things and even extol fear as a virtue. We've all know of, of Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, he uh, defined it earlier in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Uh, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. Also, to have a healthy fear, or in other words, reverence for God's word, that's also 
extolled or lifted up in Scripture by none other than God Himself. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, we read, For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. So that kind of fear is a good thing in the eyes of God. It causes God to look upon that person because they're humble and their heart is contrite when they have messed up and sinned and they tremble because they have dishonored God and so on. And God looks at a person like that with mercy and compassion. The haughty he pays no attention to, uh, the, up, the proud and so the arrogant, but the contrite, the humble of heart, uh, those that tremble at his word he looks at with mercy. So those are just a couple of things that we should fear. But in contrast, there are over 300 places in the Bible where we are commanded by God as his people not to fear certain things. For example, we are not to fear man. We are not to fear circumstances, whatever they might be. Nor are we to fear the uncertainty of the future. Let me read a couple of verses, uh, passages to you. You can write them down. One is Habakkuk, which we've made kind of a favorite uh, this year because of all the COVID craziness and scares and fears. And so it's good to revisit Habakkuk every once in a while. Chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, which says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, if all visible uh, sustenance is gone, everywhere you look, there's no fruit in the trees, there's no olives in the trees, there's no animals to kill and eat or get milk from. If every means of sustenance is removed, here's what the writer, the prophet said, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Why? Because he's promised to take care of me. I'm his child, all right? And I don't care what the circumstance is. God is bigger than my circumstance. Whether it's individual or national, God is bigger than our circumstances. I love Isaiah 41, verses 10 and 13. It's a great one, since many are fearful today. But God says, fear not, for I am with you. Isn't that what we celebrate Christmas? Jesus, the coming of Jesus, what was one of the names he was called by? Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 13, for I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Help me with what? Fill in the blank. Whatever you need. That's the idea, right? That's the idea. God will help us with whatever we need. Look, guys, fear robs us of our peace, our joy, but most importantly, it robs us of our faith. Fear and faith are mutually exclusive and cannot exist at the same time in a Christian's heart. Now, hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it in a minute. You might be thinking, so what is the cause of all this fear everywhere? People are terrified and 
fear is what plagues so many. What is the cause of all this fear? Well, we have to go back to the very beginning to answer that question. I think that ultimately it is the fact that we are living in a fallen world. And that fear entered the world at the same time that sin entered the world. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they hid from God. They ate the fruit that brought sin into the human race, into the world, and they hid from God. Why did they hide? Because they were afraid. For the first time in human history, man felt that horrible sensation that we all know is fear. And ever since, fear has been surrounding us, paralyzing us, and often overcoming us. In the days ahead, our faith might be tested in ways we wouldn't have thought possible a year ago at this time. The devil might try to come at us like a flood. Doesn't the Bible say that about him? He often tries to come at us like a flood, overwhelms us with circumstances. He might come at us like a flood in the days and months ahead of us to overwhelm us with fear and uncertainty about the future. Jesus did say prior to his return, Luke 21, 26, people's hearts would be failing them from fear of those things coming upon the earth. But listen to me. Those words were spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ and were directed at unbelievers living during the tribulation period. But to his people living today, or any time prior to the great tribulation period, to us he says things like, Luke 12, verses 29 to 32. He said, and do not think, excuse me, and do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. This is, unbelievers, they worry about this kind of stuff because they have no heavenly father that has promised them certain things. For all these things, I'll just paraphrase, the unbelievers of the world seek after. And your father knows that you need these things. He knows you need certain things to live physically, food and shelter and clothing and so on. And he's promised to give us those things. In Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew records that Jesus says, but don't live at the level of your physical needs. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else you need on the physical level, God will take care of. He doesn't want us, our minds consumed with things he's going to take care of. But he wants us focused on his kingdom and living for a higher purpose than just our basic physical essentials. The unbelievers worry about that stuff, but not us. We're children of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. I love verse 32. Do not fear little flock. I love when the Lord talks like a shepherd. Because I understand, not firsthand, but I've studied enough about sheep to know how much we are like sheep and need a shepherd. Sheep are defenseless. They need a shepherd for protection. They're stupid. They need a, a shepherd to guide them. He leaves me beside the still waters. You know why? Because sheep are so dumb, if they're, if they're facing a fast-moving river, the first one wades out there to get a drink, he's swept down the river, and they all follow. 
Well, you, you think they would say, look, look at Herman. He got swept down. To, we, we, we shouldn't go out there. No, let's all go. And, and they get, he leaves me beside the still water because I'm too stupid to do things right. And so on. So I love that when the Lord, you know, he will lead his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. And, you know, and I forgot that song we used to sing, but just, you know, he gently leads those who are with young. He just, our good shepherd, right? Little flock, I got it covered. What are you fearful about? Remember me, the great I am, I'm with you. I've entitled this message, Cure for Troubled Hearts. The Cure for Troubled, for the Troubled Heart. Let me get my own title correct. Cure for the Troubled Heart. Which begs the question, what do we do when we find ourselves in a difficult, even frightening situation? What is the cure for the troubled heart? Can I just make this very simple? Not that you're, you know, I'm not trying to talk down to you. I'm just saying, let's make it simple. You know what the cure for the troubled heart is in just a single, one word, faith. So he said, Jesus, that's true. But that goes along with faith, right? I'll talk about that more in just a second. That's very good, very true. Very simply, the cure for a fearful heart is faith. Now, look, this is such an important subject. Let's take a few minutes and really nail it down. Because it's one of those subjects that, you know, every Christian thinks they understand faith, uh, what that is. But a lot of Christians couldn't really define it, all right? There are basically two kinds of faith that a person can exercise, saving faith and practical faith. To come to Jesus requires one kind of faith, and then to walk with Jesus every day requires another kind of faith. Saving faith is the faith of a moment which affects my eternity. Practical faith is moment-by-moment faith which affects my daily life. A classic passage with regard to saving faith, and you don't have to turn to it, most of you know it, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not the result of your good works, lest any should boast. So salvation is a gift from God appropriated by faith. Saving faith is in view. What about practical faith? Well, there's, I mean, there's dozens of scriptures on each one of these. I'll just give you one that stands out in my mind, one that deals with practical faith, Hebrews 10, 38. Now the just shall... Live by faith. Live by faith, right? Guys, practical faith starts out as God starts out when God gives to us as new believers a measure of faith. I believe that's in Romans. Paul talked about that, all right? Where once you get saved, God gives to you a measure of faith. Now it's up to you to exercise it, to use it. The old saying you lose you you don't lose it, excuse me, you don't use it, you lose it, right? Well, faith is like a muscle. And, and when I, we'll talk about the, the, the guys now for a second. Uh, every boy born, and, and girls, of course, God gives muscles to. Now, some people grow up and never use their muscles. So the muscles never grow. They never get bigger. They never get stronger. But then you have others who really work their muscles. And they do grow bigger and they do grow stronger because that's how muscles work. And faith is a spiritual muscle. The more you exercise it, the more it grows. Little faith, God can only honor in little ways. Uh, Larger, stronger faith, he will lead you into 
you know, opportunities that are, you know, commensurate with that level of faith. The good news is we can all have strong faith because we can all exercise our faith. Um, and, and some Christians pursue this. They do want to um, exercise faith. They, 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 they don't want everything handed to them. They want to trust God. I was telling First Service about Hudson Taylor, missionary to China. He believed in his heart as a young man that God had called him to be a missionary in China. But he knew that if he was going to be a missionary in China someday and trust God for thousands or even millions of dollars, because he was really had that heart for China, he would have to start trusting God right now in the States for pennies and nickels. And it's an amazing story. I, I, I encourage you to get a copy of his uh, biography and to read it. Great, great biography. You can get them. Some are larger than others. You can get a small one and just get the, the basics. But tremendous man of God, but he purposed in his heart he was going to, to exercise his faith that it would grow stronger that so when he had to trust God for thousands, he, he was ready. In many ways, it's easier to exercise saving faith. I'm not putting that down, believe me. But in, in many ways, it's easier to exercise faith for a moment than it is to exercise moment-by-moment moment faith for a lifetime. But as Jesus said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. Well, that's a pretty haunting statement. I mean, it's like God saying, look, um, I've given you a measure of faith. If you don't want to use it, you don't want to exercise it, you want to play it safe and so on and so forth, then I can only do small things in your life. According to your faith, let it be done to you. He's talking about working miracles and things. Of course, he grew up in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth. And he went back there after he had begun his public ministry. And we read some haunting words in Matthew 13, around verse 55, where it says that they didn't believe in him. Why? Because he grew up there. The old Keith Green song, Prophets Don't Grow Up from Little Boys. Really? Okay. But it says he could do no mighty works among them because of their unbelief. I'm sure he healed a few colds, but he could do nothing of any real power. Why? Because he was bound to their faith? No. God doesn't need any of us for anything. Okay. I mean, if God chooses to, it's his decision. God can override any of our faith. God, you know, even when we have no faith, God sometimes is gracious and comes in and does a great work. But in general, the Lord is looking for faith. He's not dependent on it. It doesn't, it doesn't hinder what he wants to do ultimately. But in our lives, personally, I'm convinced that God wants to work in certain ways but he wants us to be exercising faith. The just shall live by faith. Yeah, they get saved by faith. That's the miracle of a moment. We're talking about the work of a lifetime, and we exercise faith day by day. Well, I don't know how to do that. Well, you pray and ask God to give you opportunities to trust him. I'll tell you, a good place to start is when you have no money in a, in the, and the tires on the car are bald. You don't run out and put it on the credit card and then trust God to provide the money for the credit card. I don't think it works like that. 
If you drop the credit card down, God says, okay, well, you've taken care of it. Now you're going to have to pay the bill. Oh, but God. No, no, no. If you would come to me and pray to me and trust me, I would have done something where you wouldn't have had a bill hanging over your head. And you would have seen how I worked or how I can work. We, we often don't do we, we run to the bank. We run to the credit card company. You know, we run to parents. We run to somebody to borrow money. We don't take the time to really pray. Often. I'm not saying everybody. I'm just saying, oh, according to your faith, let it be done to you. What is the definition of biblical faith? Again, very important subject. Well, one author defines it this way. He said, and I quote, faith is confidence in the trustworthiness of God. It is the conviction that what God says is true and that what he promises will come to pass, end quote. Another put it this way, he said, and I quote, Biblical faith is, the, is a confident expectation that grabs the future and drags it into the present so that it governs the way I think, live, and view this life, end quote. What does that mean? Well, I need something, and I'm praying for right now, something God has promised. And even though I don't see it yet, I know God has promised it, and it's as good as done in my mind because God can't lie. And so I grab hold of a promise and bring it into the present, and I live like it's already a done deal. It's already happened. And I praise God for what he's done, even though he hasn't done it yet, because I have total faith in his promises, right? Oswald Chambers, great, Chambers, great man of God, wrote a fantastic devotional, said, and I quote, faith, of course, true biblical faith, never knows where it is being led, but it loves and knows the one who is leading, end quote. I love that. In other words, true faith doesn't seek to control God. It seeks to be controlled by God. This is where the word of faith teachers are misleading people. They're teaching people if you have enough faith, as one of the, 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 the godfathers, if I can put it that way, the whole movement said when he wrote this book, uh, you know, uh, have faith in your faith. And he basically said through that book, if you have enough faith, you can write your own ticket with God. In other words, God becomes your servant, and you're in control. You're calling the shots. Now, they might not word it that way, but that's exactly what their theology is teaching. If you have enough faith, you could basically call into existence whatever you want, and God has to honor that because he's bound by the laws of faith, as they say. Of course, Jesus didn't feel that way. Anyone in this room deny Jesus had faith? No, of course. The Lord Jesus had great faith. And he prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he went to the cross. Father, if it's possible, uh, let this cup pass from me. The cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I am not the master and God is not my servant. He is the master and I am the servant. And sure, I can pray for what, anything I need and, and a lot of things I want. But 1 John 5, 14 and 15, whatever we ask according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he, that he hears us, we know that we have the petitions we have asked of him. Every prayer has to, has to be sifted through the, the grid of God's sovereignty. Because I'm not in control. He is. But guys, when it comes to true faith, true faith perseveres. True faith hangs in there, and it sees us through the difficulties of life. True faith. 
It's the kind of faith that Peter expressed when after Jesus laid out some very tough teaching and a lot of his would-be disciples couldn't deal with it and left and walked with him no more. And he turned to the 12 and said, will you also go away? And Peter loved Peter, foot and mouth Peter. Peter had a real problem getting that foot jammed in his mouth, but here he shines. Where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. That's faith. One author said, and I quote, Biblical faith is so important to our Christian lives that between the principle that just shall live by faith at the end of Hebrews chapter 10 and the exhortation run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, the writer inserts an entire chapter on defining, explaining, and illustrating what true biblical faith is and what it looks like in the lives of those who possess it, end quote. And he's talking, of course, about chapter 11, the great hall of faith chapter. One of the great lessons that Hebrews 11, again, the great hall of faith chapter showcasing some of the greatest examples of faith throughout the history of God's people, one of the lessons this chapter teaches us is that just because a person has great faith doesn't mean they won't experience great adversities, persecutions, and even death for their faith in Jesus. Read Hebrews 11 again. After the writer talks about all these great examples of faith, he talks about how those some who had great faith were poor, destitute. They were sawn in half. They were persecuted. They were martyred, of whom the world was not worthy. The point he is making is that faith trusts God no matter what. True biblical faith doesn't try to call the shots, doesn't try to change the circumstances the way I want them to be, and if God doesn't listen to me, then I'm out of here. I'm done with him. He better come through, really. The, the author of the book of Hebrews is making the point to tell us as he talks about all these great examples of faith that true biblical faith trusts God no matter what is the faith Job expressed when he said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Though God doesn't deliver me out of the persecution and I find myself martyred for the cause of Christ, I am not going to be shaken in my faith. When my dad died unexpectedly back in 1991, of a heart attack. He was a believer. And when I did the, the uh, eulogy for him, I, I said to everybody, my heart is broken, but my faith has never been stronger. Because God has never promised me I'm going to have exemption from adversities and heartache and sorrows. But he's on the throne. And I trust him. Again, what is faith? Well, the best definition of biblical faith comes right out of God's word. Turn to Hebrews 11. The best definition of faith you'll ever read comes right out of the word of God. Hebrews 11, verse 1. 
Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I'm not going to get into a full explanation of that. You can go online and listen to our Hebrews 11 study. But let me just say this. Biblical faith is always tied, listen, to things hoped for. To things hoped for. Never to things that have already come to pass, of course. Paul said that in Romans 8. He says, look, hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Right? We don't hope for what we have in our hands. We hope for a promise that was given to us. And in this situation, a promise of God, right? So obviously, we don't hope for things we've already attained. We hope for things that are coming, yet future. Biblical hope, though, is never a maybe hope or a hope-so hope. It's always a certain hope, a settled fact, a sure thing kind of hope. Whenever I ask a person... Um, who professes to be a Christian. So, you know, you're confident someday you're going to be in heaven. And they say to me, oh, I hope so. See, that's a red flag for me. Okay? That's a red flag. What do you mean you hope so? And I say, well, I know so. I know I'm going to heaven. See, that's irritated people. That, that has irritated people. They shoot back, well, who do you think you are? Well, you think you're so good? You, 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 deserve heaven and, and you're, you're a sure thing? No, you're, you're misunderstand. I don't think I'm going to heaven because I'm so good. I'm, I'm bad. I'm a sinner. I'm going to heaven not because of what I do. I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus did. It's all about faith in him. I believe in him. I put my trust in him. The reason biblical hope is a sure thing, a settled fact, is because it's always tied, listen, to a promise of God. And God cannot lie, and therefore what he has promised he will absolutely bring to pass. In Hebrews 6, the writer is contrasting the Old Covenant with the New. The Old Covenant built on works and keeping commandments and laws with the New Covenant built on faith in Jesus. And he's talking about how the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. Better promises, better high priest, the whole nine yards, right? I'll read you just verses 17 through 19. That's the context, though. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge uh, who have fled for refuge in, uh, to lay hold on the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. What's he talking about? We have run, of course, he's talking to the Jews primarily, but we have run from the old covenant based on works and laws, keeping commandments, and we have fled to Jesus to take refuge in him. Because salvation is in Christ. He did the work. He lived the perfect life, right? He died for our sins. That's why the new covenant is better than the old. God takes it completely out of our hands and says, look, just believe in my son. And if you do, you have everlasting life, right? This hope we have is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. Look, guys, God is gracious. 
We talk about uh, the hope, absolute certain hope, is always tied in the Bible to a promise of God. But look, God is gracious and will often, often give us things we ask him for, even if he hasn't specifically promised us those things in his word. I, I, I told first service, I've told you this before, our little Christmas story. It goes back years. We first got in ministry, didn't have any money, okay? Uh, God always took care of us, but we were, it was a, that Christmas was a very, very tight Christmas. We had no money. Kids were little, and of course, I wanted to get them presents for Christmas, but we were behind on bills, the car needed work. I forgot all the details, right? And so I remember praying to God at the beginning of the month. Lord, I know that you promised me to take, give us food and shelter and clothing. I know that. I know you haven't promised to give my kids Christmas gifts. But Lord, would you just see it in your heart to provide us money to give the kids a good Christmas? Because Christmas is all about the kids, right? I forgot all that he did. I remember looking back a few days after Christmas, at the Christmas he gave us. It was incredible. And we never, ever ask anyone for money. That's the key. You never go around asking for money. You pray. That's how your faith is stretched, right? We just pray. We never ask anybody for money. Not my in-laws, not my parents, not the church. We just prayed. And God came through in a very powerful way. Now, I didn't have a promise to cling to. I, I could go to a verse that said, and I will give your kids new bikes every three years. <laughs> I promise that you're going to all have a nice family vacation every year. And yet he, he answered those prayers. So sometimes God will give us things he hasn't promised us. But we're talking about the things he has promised us. Those are sure things. And, and the overarching thing he has promised us above all, above all else is when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven, and we are children of God forever. We have a place waiting for us in heaven. That is a promise in his word to us. That is a sure hope. But God has given us in his word, as Peter put it, many great and precious promises. Everything we need for life and godliness. And so these promises become the focus of our faith and the certainty of our hope. And what God has promised, Romans 4.21, He is able to perform. Oh, but how? I'm out of work. I have no money. I'm behind in the rent. The cupboards are bare. How's God going to provide? That is not your business. That is not your business. Not my business. It's a promise that God's going to fulfill. How he does it, that's up to him. But it's something he has promised us. Getting back to our theme as we wind this down. Cure for the troubled or fearful heart. Again, guys, fear robs us of our peace, our joy, and most importantly, our faith. You all know 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of po power, love, and a sound mind. 
Look, the fear of man or circumstances or the uncertainty of the future is not from God. And why Jesus commanded his disciples to not let their hearts be troubled or fearful. The Lord went on to tell them why. You believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, guys, faith is the cure for fear. Faith in the promises of God. And that's what Jesus went on to give them throughout chapter 14. We'll get to those promises. Don't fear. Don't, I got it covered. Remember who I am. You believe in God, believe in me. Remember, I am the great I am in human form. And then he proceeds to give them all these great and precious promises. Why they shouldn't be afraid. We'll look at those as we go. But, but let me just end by saying, aren't you glad that you know Jesus Christ? I mean, what peace there is from knowing that our future is secure as children of God and that we don't need to fear what's coming, whatever that might be. This is, of course, what Jesus was, Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples in the upper room that evening, the night before his crucifixion, when he commanded them, do not be fearful about the future, but have faith. Faith in God and in his promises that he has given us in his word. Remember I said a moment ago that fear and faith are mutually exclusive of one another? They cannot exist in the heart of a Christian simultaneously at the same time in the same intensity or, or percentage. What do I mean? Well, in other words, you can't have 100% fear and 100% faith in your heart at the same time. Nor can you have 0% faith and 0% fear in your heart at the same time. You can have 50% faith and 50% of, of, of fear dwelling together in your heart at the same time, or 70% fear, 30% faith. You get the idea, right? Let me just say that my point is that the more faith fills your heart, the less fear will dominate your heart, right? The more faith you have that is filling your heart at any given moment, I'm talking about when you're facing a crisis or adversity of some kind, the less fear will be present, and vice versa. The more fear, the less faith, and so on. And so with that in mind, understand this, and this is where we blow it, okay? With that in mind, understand that the goal of the Christian life is not to try to diminish our fear. It's all designed to seek to increase our faith. Let me say it again, because we do this a lot. Christians want joy. So what do they do? They pursue it as a direct pursuit. Not realizing oftentimes it's a byproduct of a life of selflessness. Remember John 13 earlier in the evening? Uh, do as I have done. I've washed your feet. Be, wash each other's feet. Be servants of each other. And your joy will be full. Right? So joy comes as a byproduct of th them being, and all of us, being unselfish. And servants to people. Same thing is true with fear. I don't want fear. It's bad. It dishonors God. My New Year's resolution is to stop being afraid. Good luck with that. And I say good luck because the Spirit's not involved in a promise like that. That's totally based on your own fleshly strength. So all I can wish you is good luck. When all the while, the whole Christian life is not about trying to diminish our fear. It's trying to build our faith. Because the stronger your faith, the more it pushes out fear. 
That will be a byproduct, a, a life of courage and strength. A fearless life is the byproduct of a heart full of faith. Okay, well, how is that accomplished? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But let me say this to you. What you get out of God's word will depend on how you view God's word. Do you treasure it? Do you treasure it? Psalm 119, 162. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold. Yes, than fine gold. Guys, the word of God is valuable. But many Christians don't really value it. Oh, they'll tell you they do. But they really don't. It's kind of like I was telling first service. That, that show, Antique Road Show, I think it was called. Where, you know, you dig around in your attic and find some old piece of junk that was handed down from generation to generation in your family. You stuck it up in the attic, right? It's all dusty and dirty. And, and they're coming through town. I'm going to go up there and dig out that, uh, that ugly uh, brass statue, right? You bring it over and the person freaks out. That belonged to the Romanoff family. It's a priceless heirloom. All of a sudden, now you're valuing the thing. It always had value. You just didn't ascribe value to it. God's word has always been valuable. But whether or not it will make us rich in faith, well, it won't if we don't value it ourselves. I mean, guys, we have got to start treasuring God's word and stop giving it lip service and playing games with it. Let me just read to you something Vance Havner said. Vance Havner was an old Baptist preacher. I love the guy. He's with the Lord now. But grew up in the South, had these homespun turns of phrase. Just a great guy to listen to. But, but let me read to you what he said on this subject, and I quote, I have, read that, I have read that years ago in that part of Africa where diamonds in the rough were very plentiful, a traveler chanced on boys playing in the street. Closer investigation revealed that they were playing marbles with diamonds. God forgive us today that we handle his treasures as though they were trifles and the coinage of the eternal as though it were play money. It is no time to play marbles with diamonds. And to that, guys, I say a wholehearted amen. Amen. Listen, and we're done. Now here's the part where I should be uplifting you. I'm afraid I'm not going to do that today. Ultimately, but not right now. With all that in mind, listen carefully to me now as we close. Listen carefully to me. We could, in a very short time, enter into a time of testing of our faith that is unlike anything we've ever experienced or might ever experience as a nation. Let me say it again. We, we might be on the verge as we enter into the new year. We might be coming into a time of testing, the testing of our faith, that is going to be something like we've never seen. Why does God do that? Why does God allow that? He does it from time to time when his church becomes so watered down with terrors 
I, I, you know, I, let me just say this. This is not a time to play games. It's not a time to go on enjoying what some have called country club Christianity, as some look at Christianity. What do I mean? It's all about socializing and networking and, you know, building their business through Christian relationships, taking up their cross. That's the farthest thing from their mind. Following Jesus with all their heart, don't, don't even go there. But listen to me, if we don't shift our walk with God into high gear and get serious quickly, many are going to be shipwrecked in their faith. They're not ready. I'm not sure I'm really ready. I've taken this to heart already. And I've been praying, Lord, give me grace. I've never known the kind of persecution that some Christians have lived with all their lives in Muslim nations or Eastern Bloc nations and so on. I don't know if that's coming to America, and I pray it isn't. I don't know. I just know that we better shift our walk into high gear quickly because there is, might be coming a time of testing like we've never known before. And a lot of Christians, even if they are really saved, and many who go to church aren't, but even those who are really saved and yet have not exercised their faith and are still really weak in their walk and in their faith, it's not going to go well for them. This is no time to play marbles with diamonds and treat God's word like a trifle, the way many treat a message in a fortune cookie, unseriously. Look, I'm not saying that God gave me this verse for our church or even for the church of Jesus Christ in America at this time in history. But this verse is in his word, and it will come to pass, whether it's with us or a future generation. But because it's in God's word, we need to take it seriously. Revelation 2, verse 10. Turn there, we'll close. Revelation 2, verse 10, where Jesus said, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Was that only directed to the church of Smyrna? Or was there a larger application? I know this, the church has been persecuted over the centuries. I know this, that the devil has always wanted to kill us, who are believers in Christ. I know that Christians have been thrown in jail. Many have been martyred for their faith. Why should we think that we don't deserve that kind of treatment? Why do we think we're exempt? I don't know what's coming. I know one thing, again, we better get on our knees, we better get serious. I'm talking about not giving God's word lip service. I'm talking about opening up, reading it, meditating on it, taking it to heart, clinging to the promises of God every day. Because if we don't, we're not going to be ready for what's coming if it's something pretty bad. 
May God give us grace, strength, and courage to, in his strength, deal with what is possibly coming. May he give us strength to be a light in the darkness, to stand up for Jesus no matter what, and say, I'm not going to deny my Lord. I belong to him, and you can do whatever you want to me, but I am not going to deny my Savior. May God give us the grace, if need be, to have that kind of heart with whatever's coming our way. Father, we thank you for your great and precious promises, Lord. We know that they're a sure thing. Your promises, Lord, and the faith required to um, see them happen. Uh, your promises are not a hope-so hope. Maybe it's going to happen. It's a sure thing. A no, I know so hope. Give us grace, Lord, to cling to the promises in your word that our hearts not be fearful. We believe in you, God. We believe in our Savior. Give us grace to apply that faith to our practical lives. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.